This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Donald Trump met Russian President Vladimir Putin Friday at the G20 in Germany. Shortly after, there was an announcement of a possible cybersecurity unit with Putin. Uh, Trump backpedaling on that. Also, Donald Trump Jr. was hit with a report citing that advisor to the White House briefed Trump Jr. before meeting with a Russian lawyer to get damaging information on Hillary Clinton. It just doesn't end when it comes to Donald Trump. And joining us to talk about what is happening and uh, kind of maybe what's going forward is Michael Tobe. He's a Troy Media syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor, also a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. So he's well-versed on the subject that is Donald Trump. Michael, first of all, Thank you for joining us. How are you? Very good, Ted. Thanks for having me on. Now, let's first of all, be, before we go any further into this, it's been sure. uh, January. Donald Trump was uh, a uh, named new president, he, the inauguration. Where would you rate his presidency now, six months in? <laughs> I was asked that, generally speaking, for the first hundred days. Yep. Uh, for the first six months, I would say probably in the neighborhood, to, to be nice, of C to C minus. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't put it as an F, as a lot of people would. I think that he has been able to at least propose some good ideas. I think what he has found out, though, over time is that no matter the ideas that he has that benefit, say, people like me who are small C conservatives or libertarians or others on the right, he's learned that there is a give and take in politics where he has to build bridges rather than destroy them on a regular basis. And when he puts out these terrible tweets and other things, he just causes a lot of division. And more importantly, he takes away from the important day-to-day -day process of putting through policies that would benefit the American people from lower taxes, smaller government, or just better foreign policy initiatives that would make a lot of sense. For that reason, I would say that he at least deserves marks for trying to be an active president, but I wouldn't give him anything very high because, generally speaking, if you look at his record day by day over the past six months, very little has been accomplished, but most of it has not been accomplished by his own shenanigans more than anything else. I don't want to use the term naivety here, but it seems to me that I'm appalled that he hasn't picked up on maybe what his advisors are telling him, saying, you know, get off Twitter, stop doing it in the middle of the night, uh, dealing in, with foreign powers, just... Yes, the man made a whole lot of money, we know that, but boy, he sure. seems really naive, doesn't he? Or am I missing something here? No, he made a whole lot of money. He also lost a whole lot of money, too. He's not always been on the plus side when it comes to his finances. But no, you're not being uh, naive at all, whatsoever. Um, the real problem is that Donald Trump created an intriguing type of way to become president. He used social media and the media to his benefit. He basically tried to control the political narrative literally from day one, and he just sort of got the media just sort of wrapped up in everything that he did to the point where when he beat out 16 other candidates to become the GOP presidential nominee, and even during the campaign against Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump dominated the headlines. Yes, by his craziness, his zaniness, and we all know that, but he also did it because he was able to control the media in such a way that they basically lived on his every word. And when you're dining out every day on every single word one candidate is saying, it really actually helps benefit you, and it creates a movement, so to speak. This is a person, as we know, that being Trump, who has no filter, 
He's not a traditional politician. He doesn't fit the either the modern or classic sense of what we would call a conservative or a Republican. He just became sort of an everyman, a figure who was not politically correct, who basically, he said, spoke for the unwashed masses who he believes had been ignored for many years. He became their champion, as preposterous as it may sound, because he is part of this so-called 1%. We used to have rallies about a couple years ago. Donald Trump, the billionaire, became the champion, basically, for a lot of people who were either lower middle class or below. And that's an astonishing thing that he did. But because he's created this formula for himself, Ted, that worked successfully and got him to the White House, as he likes to trumpet every few weeks or so, um, he's just unwilling to change whatsoever. So whether it's Ivanka Trump, his daughter, or whether it's his advisors like Kellyanne Conway and others trying to tell him, please cut back on Twitter, lower the amount of things that you say, try not to always create this firestorm that we have to basically take water to every single day, it looks like, and please make our roles a little bit easier so that we can get through a lot of good ideas and get through the process of government and ensure that basically a political system that he controls not only is the president a republican the senate is all is dominated by the republicans although by two seats the house of representatives is republican and the judiciary is now controlled by republican well at least republican favoring judges Everything is works to his advantage, yet he always seems to back himself into a corner and puts himself at a disadvantage time and time again. And it's frustrating, you're absolutely right, that his advisors just don't have a stronghold on him or are unable to basically tell him to move in a different direction and look at things in a positive manner than always basically lashing out and seeing things in a negative, negative way that, yes, may obviously embolden his, his base, he has supporters who will follow him to the ends of the earth, but at the same time, it just frustrates the vast majority of Americans. More than 60% of Americans don't favor his presidency right now, which, yes, is not a big deal because there's three and a half years to go in his first term, but it's not the best way to start. You want to put your best foot forward in the early days. It really just makes you wonder where this presidency is going next. I was just going to ask, before we talk about what happened on the weekend, can he win, or does he think he can win, a war against the media? I believe he feels he can, and the reason is that he would obviously look towards his past success over the past two years and say that I was able to do it. I was able to control the media in a way that no politician before me, and perhaps none that ever follow him, will have ever been able to do, which is that he was able to go on stage, bash away at them, occasionally praise them once in a while, but it would just be in a very combative nature. We saw his early press conferences, and I'm sure you did too, and most of your listeners did. Those were basically, I mean, they were gong shows in many ways, just to watch the way that he would fight with certain media organizations, primarily from groups such as CNN or NBC or others, but he would go after everyone. I mean, he fought for a while with Fox News. He took himself off the air with them for a bit. CNN, he banned from coverages, you know, and even now, you know, their, um, their exposure to a lot of press conferences or just the day-to-day machinations of the Trump White House are very few and far between. I think he feels he can control the media. I think he feels he can control them for the rest of his presidency and beyond. And I think that he feels he's come up with this magic political formula that nobody before him has ever been able to create. 
Again, time will tell. His numbers are not great right now, but if he is able to at least hold a core support base of, say, 35 to 40 percent throughout his entire first term, which sounds a little upbeat, but maybe it's possible, you can actually build on that if the Democratic Party in 2020 does not put up a good presidential candidate or at least one that the American people feel would be an adequate replacement for him for whatever reason. So, yes, I think he does think he can win the war with the media, and I think he still feels that he can actually utilize that war with the media and that it will continue to benefit him politically throughout his entire term. Our guest on the Scott Thompson Show, Ted Michaels, filling in for Scott, is Michael Tobe. He's a columnist, Washington Times contributor, uh, talking about uh, Mr. Trump. You know, uh, Michael, you mentioned the term presidential candidate. Now let's shift to what happened on the weekend where Donald Trump Jr. apparently was uh, under a little bit of heat because of a, a meeting that he was promised would be damaging to presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Now there seems that they're backtracking a little bit that Trump said it really wasn't that big of a deal. What's your take on that? Yeah, I I think I'm sort of of two minds. I mean, the first thing is, and I will say this as someone who's been involved in politics, and not just journalism, but politics for close to 25 years, you don't get involved in meetings like that. That meeting with Donald Trump Jr., which also included Jared Kushner and a very experienced politico, that being Paul Manafort, with the uh, with the Russian in that was involved with it, I think that was last year, last around June, just around the time that he actually clinched the GOP presidential nomination. Meetings like that should never occur. You always have to worry about if you've been in politics long enough about an alternative agenda. Is there some other reason that they want to sit down with you? As well, whenever you whenever you hear someone sort of tell you that they have information about your political opponent, that being Hillary Clinton and or the Democratic Party, you have to treat it with a grain of salt because you never really know what you're getting involved with. Obviously, Donald Trump Jr. did not know the person he was speaking to, and I presume Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort did not either. And for that reason, you should be leery to some degree about entering a meeting like that. So the meeting itself, which is the thing that concerns me the most, was a bad move, and it actually just shows the, shall we say, the greenness of political people like the Trump family. Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, etc. They may have their good points and their bad points, but they basically have been involved in a world of business. They really don't understand the give-and-take nature of politics. Now, the only good thing, Ted, briefly, is that it appears that after at least three attempts of Donald Trump Jr. to finally explain himself as to what happened, it appears that very little occurred. Kellyanne Conway, who's one of the senior advisors to President Trump, came out and basically said that this meeting really was just a bunch of nothing, so to speak, and I'm not obviously quoting her, I'm just paraphrasing, and she's right. It does not appear as if anything important or tangible came out of it. The problem to me is that this meeting ever occurred in the first place, and now it means that people are going to start looking around and nosing around to see, one, if Donald Trump Jr. was ever involved in another meeting of some sort with, say, someone who was involved with Russia or the Kremlin or other groups, and what that was in pertaining to, or B, if Donald Trump Jr.'s was only an isolated incident, this meeting, or whether other people who were linked with President Donald Trump at some point in time got involved in these, shall we say, covert meetings that have only now, been come, you know, have only now come to light in the last little while. 
I think that's the most important part of this. It's not the meeting itself, which was stupid, but at least nothing happened with it. It's the fact that there could have been other things involved with it. But, I mean, time will tell. We don't know at this stage. You know, I I go back far enough... um demographically and uh, chronologically to remember the White House, uh, the uh, Watergate um, scandal sure. with the White House. And and I'm looking at this thing where they say they have information that will be damaging to Hillary Clinton. Yes. Maybe again here, maybe I'm being naive, but I don't understand how they could get that information and what they think, what type of information they think that they could get about Hillary Clinton. Can you enlighten me on that? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, you weren't there, I wasn't there, none of your listeners were there, so we don't know exactly the full component, or at least the whole thing behind this meeting. We have the statement that Donald Trump Jr. released last night through his lawyer, and while it certainly gives a little bit of of insight as to what he was hoping to do with the meeting or what he was hoping to gain from it, it appeared that this 20 to 30 minute meeting was based on speculation, just a woman claiming that she had something or something of relevance to the Trump campaign, and that's why he entered it. But you're absolutely right. If you look at the history of Watergate, and I know that a lot of people through the whole Trump-Russia issue have been comparing it to Watergate, which, to be fair, I was a little younger than you about, but obviously I've read a fair bit about since <laughs> Thank, that time. Thanks. I'm only 47, <laughs> so I only remember it to some degree. <laughs> Whatever, I think I was about three or four when most of the hearings were happening, but um, I concur with you that if you would look at that piece of history, you would think to yourself, if you were in that position, why on earth would you want to actually replicate it? Why would you want to get involved in something that's just clouded by a, you know, a huge shroud of darkness and take a risk to your father and to a political campaign that had been wildly successful up until that point and head into this meeting with someone that you barely know? But here's the real problem, Ted, and you know this too. Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and others around, him, around them and around that family don't have a real sense of history. They don't have a full understanding of it. It's not that they don't know what Watergate was about. They don't know the involvement of Rod, Richard Nixon, etc. I don't think they realize that when things like that happen, as most people who are experienced in politics realize, be they right-wing or left-wing, you stay away from it because you don't want to replicate history. You don't want to put yourself in a set of circumstances that, as we remember, led to a president having to be resign, you know, having to having to resign from office. That's an astonishing thing to have happen. And I, why, for example, Donald Trump Jr. would even take that risk, which he claims his father didn't even know about and didn't even know this meeting was about, why he would even take that risk and put his father's name in such a position, even if it's second or third hand in that way, and that he's not the primary source and that he's not the primary set of individuals going to meet with this Russian woman, I just don't get it. <laughs> And uh, with that, our, we're up against the clock. Michael Tobe, a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, syndicated columnist with The Washington Times and uh, Troy Media syndicated columnist. Thanks for the time. A fascinating look. I'll tell you what, at the very least with the Trump um, current uh, administration, yep. there's always room for talk, isn't there? There's, there's always something out there, so I want to thank him for that. Well, I've been talking for two years. I wish I would talk on other things, too, but you're right. There's definitely a plethora of information. All right. Michael, thanks for the time. Enjoy the rest of the day. You, too.
Thanks very much. That's Michael Toba. Fascinating look at uh, Mr. Trump and exactly what's going on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. On this segment now, we want to hone in on a very serious topic. Uh, Four suicides in Northern Ontario First Nations communities in the past week. Three children and a 21-year-old man. What is drawing members of the First Nations communities to do this? And what can we do to prevent that in the future? And joining us to talk about that is the Executive Director of the Hamilton Regional Indian Centre, Susan Barberstock. Susan, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Excellent. So um, are are the alarm bells going off now? We do these stories about what happens up on the the First Nations communities, and now we hear stories about this. Um, Should people be concerned about this, or is this kind of been something that's been ongoing for the last little while? It's something that's been ongoing for the last little while. I think if you look at the media, right, they don't usually report on suicides because they don't want to sensationalize them. So we don't hear a lot about them happening in, you know, in the urban centers. But when you have an epidemic that's happening in the north, then it's more in the forefront. It's about creating a space for people to be able to talk about it. A lot of people think if you say the word suicide that you're planting that in somebody's mind, and that's not what it is. It's about allowing somebody to think, oh, I can talk to this person about it. And it is about prevention. You know, they're talking about the um, commitment from the federal government to give them some funding so that they can look at some solutions to this very horrible problem. And it is, it's about short-term solutions that they're only getting, and we need to look at the investment longer when you implement any new program in any community, it takes time to build trust. And so I think by putting, you know, one-worker programs in, in communities is, is not a good thing because then you're burning out one worker. And it's about how can we do wraparound services and how can we work together. One of the things uh, that we should also mention when we talk about numbers, uh, Susan, we uh, talked about uh, three uh, suicides, including three children and a 21-year-old man. But since January 1st of this year, there's been 18 suicides within the Nishnawabi Aski Nation's territory. That's 18 suicides. That one, I think, should really set off a red flag for an awful lot of people. Absolutely. And, you know, these are some isolated communities that... People think, oh, they're isolated. They should be able to be doing more for their community. But these are people who feel very isolated. And, you know, their access to the outside world, in a sense, is only through the media and like television and and radio and, you know, a lot of things that are sensationalized about youth and how they should be living their life. And they're not able to live their life that way. And they don't have people that they can talk to about you know, why they're feeling less than and why they don't have these support systems. And, you know, in the article, they talked about how much money they spent. Well, you have to remember that these are isolated, remote communities, so things are going to be a lot more expensive anyway. And if they don't have access to things and they don't they don't see doctors face-to-face a lot of times, it's, you know, it's through video chat. So, how can you create a relationship with somebody if you're only talking to them through video chat? You know, you you talk about number. Health Canada, in an email, said uh, when it comes to one particular First Nation that they've spent close to a million dollars to provide health services. You almost wonder, uh, given what we've been talking about, is that money well spent? Is it money that's gone to the front line, 
or is it money that they've invested in, you know, children's hospitals so that they have a video link? That's you need more clarification. Is it actually? You can say we spent a million dollars, but maybe you know, I'll say five hundred thousand of that went to doctors who were who were employed in a sense or contracted to be doing some of this video chat with with the clients instead of giving them frontline people who who can go in and do some of that prevention program that needs to happen. Is uh, enough money being, and this is kind of a broad question because we're down here in southern Ontario, we don't know what's what's happening up north. Is there enough money being spent for education for these kids that, that they can uh, look down the road and see that they do have, have a future as opposed to, uh, in many ways, taking the, uh, final, the, 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 the final way out? Education, we have to support the youth to get through high school. And they're not getting that support. You can see what's happening in Thunder Bay. A lot of those kids have to go into Thunder Bay to get their high school education. You have culture shock. You have huge racism. They're not supported. They're put in these billet homes with no real family support system. And so that's what we're sending these kids to. And so is that, you know, is that where we should be sending them or should we be keeping them in their own community? So if they're not finishing high school, they can't go on to post-secondary to break some of that cycle. To, to take that one step further, just so people kind of get a sense if they think geological, um, ge- geographically here, um, you talk about students going to Thunder Bay for high school. How far away from where they are would that be, roughly? It's quite a ways away, yep. and their communities are, a lot of these communities are only accessible by air. And again, because we have the the change in our environment, they don't have their winter roads open long, so you can't even access with a vehicle. So having to fly into a community, and that's expensive because a lot of times it's charter planes because not too many planes fly into their communities. So so looking long range, what can be done? And, and we've talked about throwing money at the problem, which in many ways is, is not working. But uh, from where you sit, what would you like to be, um, see be done? I don't think it's a, a case of throwing money at the problem. I think it's about investing. We have to invest in these frontline services that are going to support them. You know, they've been placed in these communities from many, many years of colonization. And so... It's being able to support these youth. And yes, they're probably some smaller communities. And sometimes, you know, it's your auntie or a cousin or somebody who's in this position that I have to go and talk to. And I don't really want to talk to my auntie about a lot of my problems. I want to talk to somebody else that doesn't have a connection to my family because I fear that breach of confidentiality. So it's 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 a bigger problem of how do we invest in some frontline workers who don't have that connection to the to the community in a sense of familiar wise family wise but then a lot of people don't want to go and live there right so it's six of one half a dozen of the other you know you brought up an interesting point about uh, medical issues and the doctors and a lot of them are doing video chats and what have you Um, how how problematic is it to get a doctor to, you know, he gets his degree, wants to start something new, he or, or, or she wants to go up and work at one of the First Nations. Is that a problem? I don't think it would be a problem. There's a, what they have called nurses' stations, and so those are housed by uh, are, uh, 
there's nurses that are there running the programs and doing some of that direct linkages to the doctors. But if I need medical attention, I, I don't stay in my home community. I have to be shipped out to somewhere else. So it's, am I going to Ottawa? Am I going to Kingston? Am I coming here to Hamilton? And then what type of supports do I have? Because it's not available, the, the medication or if I have to have surgery or those types of things those facilities are not available there, so I have to come out of the community. You know, you uh, you talk about some of the kids not wanting to talk to their auntie or, or what have you. Um, in, in your experience and your chats and your information, when uh, something happens, we talked about the One First Nation, 18 suicides since January 1st of uh, this year. Are those people who choose to die from suicide, are they sending out warning signals that maybe people realize that there's something going on or not? I think it's warning signs. I think we have to look at, you know, a lot of people who complete suicide, we think 2020, hindsight's 2020, we didn't see the signs or we're not sure what's going on. So I think we have to look at what were some of the contributing factors that brought them to that to that state and to that stage that they felt that that was their only out to take their own life. So what can we do and how can we invest? And I think we have to talk to them, right, because they know what they need. So if we're able to give them their voice and hear what they need, and then we need to invest in what they say they want. So um, you you talked about the, the investment, what have you, from a, an educational, this is kind of a... Uh, broad education, not just honing in on schools, for people that are here in Southern Ontario and across the rest of the country that don't understand what's going on in the First Nations, how do we educate them to say, you know, this is a major problem that maybe people should be a little more interested in? Absolutely. I think there's cultural competency training that needs to happen. We need to look at what the 94 Calls to Action talk about in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. I think we need to look at that reconciliation. And by having culturally competent people in in organizations, we're, we're creating culturally safe spaces. And if people understand those benchmarks in history and how those benchmarks in history have contributed to that colonization and some of the behaviors and and some of the issues that the Indigenous people are, are facing today, then the better off we're going to be. And you know, looking at those benchmarks in history and, and residential schools, the 60s scoop, those types of things will help people understand where we're coming from and how that colonization has affected us. Susan, a couple of weeks ago on this program, you and I chatted. It was before Canada Day, and we talked about uh, the the whole issue of uh, why a lot of uh, people didn't, First Nations people didn't really feel like, quote-unquote, celebrating Canada Day, and you talked about what your group was planning. You are having a Canada Day barbecue. Uh, looking back now, in, in hindsight, tell us about that particular day and the celebration and how it went. You know, we just took our community to a picnic so that they were able to get out of the city. We deal with a lot of people walk through our door who are affected by poverty and and homelessness. And so it's to give them a meal and to give them a day of where they don't have to worry about anything. And they're out of the city, back into the, you know, back into the environment and able to enjoy the day. And that's what we did. And uh, do you think generally, because, of course, uh, it was all focused on Ottawa and what have you, uh, do you think that the message resonated about here's why we're not really overly happy with celebrating Canada Day per se? Do you think that that message got out? 
I think you have a lot of people who think, oh, here go the Indians again, and don't understand why we're taking the stance that we're taking, and they need to have an open mind, and they need to listen. It's about changing people's attitudes, and it's about giving you some new knowledge about why we need to have this reconciliation. Uh, now, uh, I'm curious then what, what's being done from your group, and our guest, by the way, Susan Barberstock, the Executive Director of the Hamilton Regional Indian Center. Um, what, what's happening with your group down the road as far as, uh, if you will, again, here comes that word, educating people about some of the issues that, uh, that you've been talking about, the 94 calls to action and, and, and what have you. What's down the road that way? We're looking at, you know, creating relationships where we don't have relationships with some of the mainstream organizations here in Hamilton. Um, we're doing some of that cultural competency training. How can we work with the organization to, to raise their awareness levels and to create culturally safe spaces? And, and it's about relationships, knowing who to call. If you have an Indigenous client walk through your door, how do you support them? How do you even ask the question, are you Indigenous? And and to qualify that, why you're asking it, because you can offer them more. You know, one of the things I have jotted down here, I, Susan, at some point I've got to make a, make an appointment to pop down and say hi to you and see what you uh, you people do down at the Hamilton Regional Indian Center. I would like to uh, really uh, illuminate and educate myself as to what you're doing. So I'm going to throw this invitation out at some point. Hopefully we can do that. Absolutely. Come down and have a visit. You know, we say we're status blind. Whoever walks through our door, we will help you. We will show you we have 21 different programs and services that we look at all different stages of the life cycle, working with people at any stage of, of what we call the healing continuum. So it, we're here for mainstream and our own Indigenous population about creating relationships, increasing awareness. Perfect. Susan Barberstock, Executive Director of the Hamilton Regional Indian Center, thank you for the update. Continued good luck on the great work that you do, and hopefully the next time we chat, we won't be talking about the suicide issue, but uh, something a little more pleasant and palatable. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. Thank you. That's uh, Susan uh, Barberstock, as we mentioned. The uh, Boy, they do a lot of great work, very well-spoken, and uh, she uh, has uh, told us about what they do down at the the Hamilton Regional Indian Center. She's the executive director, and we're talking about the suicides, 18 suicides at the Nishwabi Aski Nation territory since January 1st, and over the weekend, three suicides uh, with uh, children and a 21-year-old man, and what is being done about that? And I think uh, the answer there is probably... Not enough. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. There is a new legislation being proposed, and I don't want to say the cynical part of me when it was released can also set off some alarm bells. However, Ottawa's cracking down on which financial services companies can use the word bank, banker, or banking to describe their business. Our friends at the country's credit unions are upset about this. And to talk about this and the ramifications and why she thinks it happened is Sandy Shaw, who is not unfamiliar to this program because, of course, she's been on with Scott Radley. Sandy, how are you? Good to be here. Now, you are uh, you are strategists who have expertise in the area of corporal social responsibility, board governance, and you've had a lot of experience in the credit union sector. So you are the perfect person to explain, first of all, let's talk about this legislation or what's proposed in it. Sure. So as you said, that you're not being cynical, but this uh, regulation was announced by OSFI, which 
which is the Office of the Superintendent for Financial Institutions. They announced this regulation Friday of the, the July 1st long weekend. So June 30th. June 30th. And the story is starting to build and uh, because it start, got a slow start. But really what the regulation says is that credit unions are banned from using the word bank, bankers or banking or any derivative of the verb bank um, in their uh, in, in, in any kind of use that the credit unions would have so that includes their um, online banking any kind of web application using the word bank it includes their their print a- advertisement it also includes any kind of physical signs where they may use the word banking like an alternative to bank or come bank with us so they're banning the credit unions uh, from using this word at all now <laughs> The question is why? Do we know? Right. Well, what is that expression? This sort of seems like a solution in search of a problem, mm-hmm. you know, so they've come up with this rather heavy-handed solution. Uh, ostensibly, OSFI has said that they are doing this to protect consumers. They're concerned that Canadians will be misled or confused when they go to a credit union where the word bank is used, and they may think that they're actually banking with one of the big five chartered banks. So that's the reasoning behind this, but it, it does, like, sort of rings hollow with most people. There's 5.6 million people in Canada that mm-hmm. are credit union members. That makes it seem, uh, according to what you're saying, with what they're saying, that there's 5.6 million people that are idiots. They're confused that they think they might be with one of the big fives. But, you know, it's not the case. People actually choose credit unions as a, as a, as a very legitimate alternative uh, for their banking needs. They choose credit unions over banks, usually intentionally, not by mistake. Now, let's talk about um, the credit unions. Uh, they're set up, obviously, differently mm-hmm. with their boards and their memberships yes. and what have you. And as you say, uh, probably lesser fees as well is probably built into this as well. But tell us why, in your experience, people go and become members of credit unions as opposed to the big five. Well, the fundamental credit union difference between credit unions and the big five chartered banks is that credit unions really focus on people, not profits. So they are usually governed locally. You can elect your directors to your own credit union. Good luck getting any input on the directors at some of the big five. Mm -hmm. And the directors have a say in uh, the way the credit union operates. And so they're driven, credit unions are driven by the members. You, You belong to a credit union and you're a member and you have a say in how the credit union operates. And at the end of the day, all of the profits for a credit union stay within the membership and stay within the community. They, so credit unions are responsible uh, locally to their members. They're not responsible to corporate shareholders uh, you know, on Bay Street. So that's really why people choose. It's a, it's a values choice. They like the local, democratically driven, profit, uh, people over profit uh, brand of credit unions. Somewhat ironically, the new uh, infrastructure bank being launched by Ottawa, mm-hmm. which is funding projects to build uh, infrastructure like roads and bridges and ports, they can use the word bank yes. in their name. I find that, again, somewhat ironic. Well, the, the irony of this heavy-handed approach has, you know, you can work with it. There's, there's food banks. There's all kinds of words that are using banks. But it is ironic that currently the, that they are starting the infrastructure bank, uh, federal. The reason that the regulator gave that they're allowed to do this is that they, these are not deposit-taking institutions. So, they're, you know, they're using the word bank to describe something, but they're not actually, they're not actually com- uh, using a consumer-driven banking uh, application. But they, that's sort of a, 
Really, it's a thin argument, in my opinion. Now, in your opinion, taking this one step further, and again, this is just your opinion, Mm -hmm. are the big five banks exuding pressure on uh, this uh, group, OSFI, to maybe they're feeling the heat a little bit? They don't like the competition. So you said it at the outset, you know, we don't want to be too cynical, but where did, who asked for this? I mean, where was the, where was the initiative to, to change this? Credit unions have been operating in Canada for over a hundred years. Hamilton has a long-standing history of credit unions. We, uh, you know, the, the steelworkers started uh, what now has become First Ontario Credit Union. Mm-hmm. So they're really based in community. We've been doing, using these words for a very long time to describe financial, what we do at a financial institution. It's just my guess that um, or my suspicion, as you say, that that um, c- credit unions are starting to nip at the heels of the big banks. You know, they do offer uh, competitive rates, better, you know, the same, if not better, than the banks. They are, have local, you know, a local focus. They contribute generally 4% of their pre-tax uh, profits to community initiatives. And in most measures, credit unions score much higher than the big banks on, on uh, consumer satisfaction. So, Given this, and also an emphasis on small business banking, it would be my suspicion that banks are starting to take notice of the inroads that credit unions are making into their business. But keep in mind, you know, we're still talking about, you know, one in five Canadians use a a credit credit union. We're still talking about the majority of Canadians do use banks. So, uh, you know, we may be dipping into a bit of their customers, but at the same time, you know, they still, we not not underestimate the huge uh, impact of of, uh, the big five. Our guest is uh, Sandy Shaw, who is um, talking about the new changes to the words um, you can't use banking now for credit unions and won't be able to use the term bank, bank or banking. So what what are the terms that they're going to use? Um, financial transactions? I know. So it's so, um, or, or I'm going to the credit union to do my credit unioning. I uh-huh. mean, like the play on words is, is unbelievable. Now, the credit union sector on has uh, sort of pushing back to this regulation, and they've got a hashtag, which is, I bank at a credit union. And there's been a lot of play on words of the word bank. Mm-hmm. But my, my sense is that this may actually, actually I'm banking on right. this backfiring, uh, because we're talking now about credit unions. People that may not, not have understood uh, the role that credit unions play in their community or the history of credit unions are now going to be focusing on this. So, in fact, it may actually backfire. But the 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 actual fact that the, the that the OSFI has come up with such a heavy-handed response, if it is to to preventing consumers from being confused, has led to some of the most uh, uh, ridiculous plays on words. But the, it's silly. It may, on the uh, on the uh, it seems silly, but it's going to cost the credit unions a lot of money. So, for example, credit unions have online web applications, web banking applications. So, when you now go to your credit union online, you you can't they cannot use the term online banking. So, even the button that you hit to go to your online banking system has to be reprogrammed. So, early estimates are this is going to cost something like a hundred million dollars for the credit union sector. Now, this is coming in uh, in in stages, as you mentioned. Websites have to be changed by the end of the year. Right. Print materials by less than a year now, June thirtieth, twenty eighteen, and 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 here's the big one, of course, signage by the end of June twenty nineteen. Right. People sometimes are so wrapped up in their day-to-day activities, I get it, but sometimes they don't know what's going on. Right. How much confusion, and I think I know the answer to this, how much confusion is this going to call, cause when somebody wants to go to a credit union and they look them and they see the sign coming down? Well, exactly, and it, it creates a sense of instability where, where this is unnecessary. I mean, we're trying to protect consumers, 
or Austria is trying to protect consumers. But in effect, what they may be doing is harming consumers. Small businesses, you know, uh, uh, the middle class people that are choose to use credit unions are the ones that are actually going to see the impact of this cost. These costs are going to be passed down to the members, either in a reduction of the kind of services they can provide. But really importantly, and especially for Hamilton, the credit unions contribute a lot of money to good community initiatives. Yes, they do. 4% of their pre-tax goes back into the community. And so with this, what I would say, you know, kind of a... I mean, this makes this just doesn't make sense. This is not a common sense approach. And with the implications of this, it may, at the end of the day, not hurt consumers but harm consumers. At the very least, it's gonna it's gonna tie up credit unions' ability to contribute to the community in the way that they have been doing to date. You know, there's there there's other things um, as we talk about trademarks and trade names and logos and what have you. I mean, somebody will be making money on this. Uh, designing firms, advertising firms, creative firms, that's actually something that you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there thinking, we kind of like to get uh, a chance to do this logo. But I, I just can't help but think that there's going to be so much mass confusion by this. And unnecessarily so. I mean, as I said, they could have come, if the idea was to protect consumers, there could have been a more common sense approach to addressing this than this. I mean, just hauling down signs, as you say, I mean, I don't know, does the sign at uh, Cops Coliseum, the first Ontario sign, does it use, has, is the word bank there? I'm not even quite clear, but that's a sign that's going to have to come down if that's the case. So what's next then as far as the, um, I always like to use the term, the education process, because mm-hmm. people may be listening to this right now for the first time thinking, I had no idea that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, take us through the next step as far as um, letting people know about what's going on and perhaps what they can do about it. Well, you've described the timelines for credit unions to respond to this, but there is a movement uh, on the, the credit union sector to push back, to get someone to to walk this back or to ease up on the regulations from OSFI. I mean, the idea being that it, it, it really it seems ridiculous that this is what OSFI is focusing on with some of the big issues that we have in terms of, we talked about the infrastructure bank, we've talked about money laundering, we talk about even some of the things that the bank, the big banks were accused of recently of selling unwanted products. So the question is, the pushback is, is this really necessary? And if OSFI has this much time on their hands, maybe they should be using it for something more constructive. Credit unions uh, locally are going to regroup. Each credit union is governed by a board. And I I think you said earlier, have a lot of experience in corporate governance. Mm -hmm. So the boards are going to reconvene and they're going to figure out a way to respond to this. They also is a credit union, Canadian Credit Union Association. That's also, you know, an association and and will will lobby hard to make sure that uh, if the OSFI does not already understand that, uh, that MPs and MPPs across the community understand that this is going to have really serious consequences, especially for some credit union. In some small towns in Canada, a credit union is the only financial institution that they have in town. And so with this additional cost burden, it's le- it's a possibility that they could close their doors. I'm just thinking about uh, out, out east, I know that the credit unit, credit union Atlantic, uh, their slogan is the better way to bank. Exactly. So well, now what? The right. better way to deposit your money and withdraw when you want to do I, I know. I mean, I'm being flippant here, but what? Are, that's a great slogan. It's catchy. Now what? Well, now what is exactly what people are trying to struggle with. But the, I actually, as I said earlier, wonder if this will b- bank backfire, bank fire, 
backfire and that more more people will now check out their local credit union to see what they have to offer and why there's this pushback. And really, I'm hoping that some really kind of sharp uh, media savvy PR company will use this for some sort of kind of catchy, cheeky slogan that in fact will will turn this on its head and it actually could perhaps become an advantage to credit unions as opposed to the current way that it's meant to disadvantage credit unions. Just got an email, uh, Ted at 900CHML saying, uh, thank you government for protecting us, uh, quote unquote, dumb people. I love you, Canada. Exactly. 150, way to go. <laughs> so um, what uh, What about the uh, the MPs? What about, uh, and again, this was... It's early from, days. From, from their point, it was brilliantly placed because it was a Friday, June 30th. Everybody's out on vacation celebrating Canada Day. The MPs are, well, the Parliament broke for the summer. Mm-hmm. What can they do, if anything, going forward when they get back to work in the fall? Well, they need to hear from their constituents this to start with. I mean, the, if, if this is the, now that this regulation has been passed and there's timelines to implement it, if MPs do not hear from their constituents, to, uh, it, with people saying that this is not, you know, not well received, it's unnecessary, and they're opposed to that, if they do not hear that uh, that pushback, then they won't do anything about it, to, to be honest with you. I mean, this, this uh, Aussie reports directly to the Minister of Finance, so there's, you know, Bill, Marno- Bill Morneau would be maybe your first stop if people really want to let their, their feelings known about the, the heavy-handed approach that, this, that has been taken. MPs certainly will respond uh, if you email them directly or you contact them directly, I mean, they may not even be aware of this, as you said, just as the credit union sector in some way got caught a little flat-footed because of, of when it was a- announced on the Friday of a long weekend. It may also be that MPs are just starting to understand uh, that this actually is a, is a regulation that will impact their ridings and their constituents as well. By the way, you mentioned uh, the MPs. Uh, if people did want to send uh, their their thoughts, we just called it up on Twitter. Uh, the finance minister, uh, he's also the MP for Toronto Centre, Bill Morneau. So Bill underscore Morneau. Um, there's his Twitter handle. Right. And people can uh, can start the campaign. He's going to uh, get mail. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? And again, maybe uh, maybe he, I, I don't know if he would turn his back on this or just he was too busy because there's all kinds of stuff going on. But I think people now will probably uh, start to get the word that maybe this is not such a good idea. I think the reaction is building. As we said, it was a slow start. The implications aren't clearly understood, but the the actual silliness of this is starting to resonate with people. The very fact that a common verb and a noun, that the word bank and the action of banking is being banned or regulated, is really doesn't seem like a very Canadian thing to do, especially they did it on the weekend of our Canada 150th celebration. So um, before we wrap up again, um, you're saying the best way for people to get involved is to email or tweet or contact their MP? Right. And also there's the credit, the Canadian Credit Union Association, um, and they also, they, they also provide some backdrop and some information to that. As I said, you know, locally, boards of directors are going to respond. The, the National Association is going to respond. But at the very least, if this is something that you find just um, so uh, heavy, abhorrent, there's the word. Yep. Um, and and you, don't even have to, you don't even need to be a credit union member to find this thing distasteful. The very fact that the federal government is banning the use of this commonly used word 
to protect the the big five? Uh, I mean, that's something that you could be opposed to and, and have some concern over whether or not you're a member of a credit union or not. So yes, let your MP uh, know. And you know what? Check out your local credit union. You may be pleasantly surprised at the way they offer an alternative to the banks. Uh, Sandy Shaw, thank you for raising awareness on this, and uh, and we will stay in touch uh, because I know in the fall when this thing uh, gets rolling, it'll be interesting to to see the response and possibly the backtracking. Uh, right. If this campaign indeed does not go as far as you hope that it doesn't. Right. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML.